Welcome to the Manifesto a Podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host, the novelist Phil Cly, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Well, here we are, comrades, fellow persons, and I have an exciting announcement to make. You know, we started this thing back in April of 2018. I can assure you with no grand plans about uh, what it would become, this, this behemoth, this cultural force that it is now. And it is intensely gratifying uh, to still be doing it with my old pal Phil and to have done it with all of you. And now in our 49th episode, we're very pleased to announce that Manifesto is officially sponsored by Fairfield University, a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut, whose mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. Phil also happens to teach at Fairfield in both their undergraduate English department and in their Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program. And we want to extend a special thanks uh, at Fairfield to Richard Greenwald, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, who was instrumental in making this happen. And there's a lot more to say about all of this. Uh, I think that the partnership with Fairfield is going to open up some incredible opportunities. It's going to make some exciting things happen. We've got a live event planned for later this year. We're excited to tell you about, but I'm going to hold off. We'll address all that in our next installment, which will be episode number 50, a very auspicious uh, episode for Manifesto, and we'll answer some of your questions then. We'll tell you more about what we have planned, some cool new things. But for now, let's move on. Our Manifesto today is Pacendi Dominici Gregis, and that is the papal encyclical on the doctrine of the modernists. And this really refers to two papal encyclicals written in 1907 that uh, both provide an analysis of what the Pope considers the modernist heresy within the church in a quite comprehensive, I would say rather trenchant examination of what constitutes modernism and which culminated in 1910 in an oath taken within the church against modernism, which was considered a heresy. And it's interesting uh, to what extent the heretical modernism within the Catholic Church is the same in its uh, suppositions and its orientation as the aesthetic, artistic movement of modernism that's also emerging at the turn of the 20th century. And I would say this is something that we get into in the conversation, and certainly there are parallels, but they're not quite the same. Um, What the Pope means by modernism resonates with the modernism in the arts, but also differs in some crucial ways, not least of all because it refers to the modernism of people who still profess to be believing Catholics. And we pair this with our art for today, La Sagrada Familia, the really uh, unbelievable, quite divisive Catholic church that is still under construction after a century in Barcelona, Spain, 
and was the target of a terrorist attack during the Spanish Civil War, also the target of uh, some quite scathing critique from George Orwell, who seemed to believe it to be a kind of modernist monstrosity, but it's not clear that that's the case, and there might have been some Philistinism on Orwell's part. And we try and figure out, what is La Sagrada Familia? Is it a a modernist church? Is it a a Gothic church, a kind of update on, on the Gothic style? To me, it looks like a melting dream, but I understand that that might not make it easier to place for everybody. And in talking about this, we're joined by an old friend of Phil's, John Davis, who is both a, a architectural scholar who has a, a unbelievable insights in all this, and is also an old Catholic school friend of Phil's. So he gets something about the church's position on modernism as well. Uh, John's an architectural historian at the Knowlton School at Ohio State. He also has a new book coming out with the University of Chicago Press called Reconstructors, Land, Work, and Engineering After the Civil War. Sounds like uh, it's going to be great. You should look out for it. Without further ado, here's the conversation. Okay, we're not going to uh, revisit what errors may have occurred on the technical (laughs) side prior to the beginning of this recording. Suffice to say that uh, in the spirit of brotherhood and fraternity, we're just going to move on. we're I would say here. that the partisans of error are not right. only sought right. in the in the enemies, open enemies right. of this podcast, but they lie hid, deeply deplored and feared in the very bosom and heart of this podcast itself. Yes, and we're not here to discuss my deficiencies or your deficiencies, <laughs> Phil. Um, let's let's first of all acknowledge <laughs> our faithful guest, John Davis, um, who's got a new book coming out. Did John, could you tell us about that book, actually? Absolutely. All right. Um, so I am. Uh, I have. <laughs> I've been an architect. Um, I've renounced my my wayward ways of being an architect <laughs> and become a historian instead. Um, and this is my first book, which comes out of uh, my doctoral research. It's about rebuilding after the Civil War, putting the Union back together. It's about looking at that as an actual thing that happened. Did the Republic? rebuild itself? Did it use the the symbolic and material acts of rebuilding, rebuilding cities, rebuilding infrastructure to advance this kind of idea of becoming a multiracial democracy? I focus mostly on the Corps of Engineers, actually. So the army is an occupying force in the U.S. South. A, a long and very interesting story. It's very um, gritty and, and brutal in a lot of ways. And uh, I always... You know, I really knew I was onto something when Jesse James appears in the, the book. He robs the federal payroll at the Muscle Shoals Canal. And I was like, this is this is awesome. Like, didn't think that I would be talking about this as a as a built environment historian. <laughs> can't go wrong with Jesse James. Yeah, can't go can't go wrong with any with highway ro- literal highway robbery. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> OK, so so modernism and the Catholic Church's position on modernism, which is really actually, you know, for me, who is not familiar with these texts and who only had a sort of 20,000-foot view of, you know, the church and the kind of arc of the 20th century involving the, the controversies over Vatican II and the first the reaction against modernism and then 
the gradual reconciliation uh, to some version of modernism, which leads then to another kind of counter reaction against that. For me, from that perspective, I think I was expecting a document that would hew more to that sort of caricature of, uh, you know, sort of uh, political forces responding to modernism. And I was not expecting the depth of um, philosophical rigor, frankly, in Pope Pius X's treatment of the nature of modernism. And one thing that I found very useful in thinking about this is an essay Phil sent me called Two Modernisms, Two Thomisms, uh, Reflection on the Centenary, Centenary, I can't pronounce that, of Pius X's <laughs> Letter Against the Modernists uh, by a, a guy named Russell Hittinger at the University of Tulsa. And I bring that up because it's useful to understand what um, Pope Pius X is referring to when he talks about the doctrine of the modernists. And I think it's at least right. three things. And then, I, you know, I, I want to hear if you guys agree. But my understanding is he's talking about first these heretics within the church, the modernists, who are adopting these doctrines that he ascribes to them. Secondly, he's talking about what we might call social political modernism, which refers essentially to the modern um, non-Catholic sovereign political world. So even if not quite yet a fully secular world, at the turn of the 20th century, certainly a world in which the Catholic Church is no longer the political sovereign. And then the third category of modernism would be this sort of underlying philosophical, metaphysical presuppositions that are not about political sovereignty, but are about the nature of reality and the nature of religious belief and of divinity and in which modernism essentially refers to a kind of naturalistic or humanistic approach to the divine, which is as against the sense of the divine as eternal, ineffable, uh, eternal, external to man, ineffable, inviolable, not a kind of uh, epiphenomena of the human personality. That's right, how, perception. that's how, I, right. Or perception or, or, or the sort of the, uh, the, the manifestation of a divine impulse inside of man. No, the Pope is saying it's not simply something inside man that's then realized uh, through this sort of apprehension of religion. There, you know, this exists outside of man, independent of man and, and man is the creation of God not the other way around. And and that you can't uh, sort of superimpose secular history on top of um, the on top of religion as if they can be both contradictory and compatible at the same time. Yeah, the, the, the church is facing sort of kind of a variety of of crises, I, I suppose, or, or is, is trying to figure out how and if it should reconcile itself to the modern world. And so there's there's the political and social component of that, right? There's science, 
and the sort of scientific worldview, but also modern like textual biblical criticism. And then um, there's also um, democracy, right? Uh, as a value, which, you know, there's, there's a sort of, you know, it's interesting. Americans were kind of <laughs> a decent number of the folks who got slapped down by this 1907 encyclical, kind of one of the more infamous of them, William, William L. Sullivan going around American towns found that like this kind of like neo-scholastic approach, basing your arguments on these sort of medieval, highly logical philosophies weren't really effective in American towns and villages. And um, barring from an article in Commonweal called American Idols, he says he began to craft a new message for Americans who loved democratic values, such as freedom of speech and liberty of conscience above all else. Right. And there's also sort of like intra-Christian debate. So there's a sort of Protestant biblical scholar named Harnack who basically uses modern historical and textual research to sort of argue, hey, the Catholic Church, the sacraments, all of this, this kind of entire edifice that they've built doesn't have anything to do with the early church. And so it can be discarded and we need to get back to the kind of kernel of, 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 of the faith. And one of the later excommunicated modernists responds with this sort of defense of defense of the church, which essentially, you know, sort of includes a role for what sounds like the kind of evolution of dogma, which we should say, which the, the Pope's doctrine on the, uh, on the doctrine of the modernists attacks explicitly the yeah. idea um, that church dogma can evolve is one of the, what he describes as like a central plank of the modernists that he's refuting. It's like the definition of heresy, like the right. definition, like the very definition of it. Yeah. And if, you know, if you want like the <laughs> cutting edge of. Been, have that always been the definition of heresy though? Or, or is the, like you could, you could conceive of a, um, you could conceive of an historical situation in which in the 17th century, it was possible to argue about, the evolution of, of church dogma in a way that was seen as the unfolding revelation of God's will or something like that. And then all of a sudden modernism becomes sort of more fundamental or excuse me, and the, the 20th century version becomes more fundamentalist on this count in reaction to the interpretive strategies of the modernists. You know what I mean? So the, the, the kind of classic book is, is, um, Newman, John Henry Newman's 1845, an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And the, the argument is basically that the dogma remains the same. The doctrine evolves and gets more detailed over time, but we're not contradicting anything that you find in sort of the church fathers. Right. And so how really there's, there's some adjustments that need to be made. Right. And ultimately like, you know, when, by the time you get to Vatican II, Huge changes are going to be made. You have and, and driven by, you know, Americans, John Courtney Murray pushing the church's endorsement of religious freedom, uh, Virgil Michael on liturgical reform and the education of the laity. But there's this tension in the church. And also there's not, as that article I sent you, there's not the kind of firm sense of like Thomism as a, a kind of core theological bedrock that the church is using. So Thomism becomes a sort of strategy to allow for the exercise of human reason 
as central in a way that is not modernist. Is that a fair yeah. way? That That's how I understood it. So it's so like I, a recuperation of Thomism to, to sort of, in a way, so it's may, its own. Maybe, maybe we should go back then and just sort of explain what, what he says modernism is. Because this is like an infamous encyclical. Yeah, when you said you were going to do this, you know, it's yeah. like, oh, my God, this is... <laughs> There's a lot here. John, what were, you were going right. to say something, though. Yeah, I, I just, um, so this this uh, this period really kind of coincides with, uh, you know, the area that I focus on in my research and, and in my teaching. And, you know, I, I talk to my students, you know, at the beginning of the semester here about how the world changes so dramatically around 1850. You have like the Bolivarian revolutions that happen. You have, um, you have the 1848 uprisings. You have the American Civil War, which is just on the horizon. You have uh, abolitionism trending. You have urbanization is happening rapidly. Industrialization is happening rap rapidly. Moby Dick is published. Uh, Marx <laughs> is, is, is so all sorts of stuff is happening here. And it all has to do with this, this kind of unease of, uh, you know, the world is changing. We can perceive that changing. And I think the Hittner article really, what really rung true for me was um, that Leo and a succession of other popes in the 1890s had successfully used Thomas Aquinas' thought to respond to, the, to this. And I'm thinking particularly of Rerum Novarum, which is the, the encyclical, um, which comes down on the side of labor against capitalists, that laborers have rights and, yeah. and it's... Um, it's a very, I mean, it's not perfect. It's, but, but it is, um, it is, it's timely, right? It's the church had historically not yep. been the source of something that would have destabilized the hierarchy in, in that kind of way. So Leo successfully uses medieval thought to come down on the side of the, the laborers. It's a little bit of a stretch. By the time we get to 1907, when Pius is talking, when Pius is, is getting really nervous about, about this and, and is lashing out really in this encyclical, he doesn't believe that the scholastic structure of thought that had been successful for Leo is going to be successful at the things he's having to deal with right now. So it's kind of this, it's a reaction and a lot of, and I know we're going to talk about architecture eventually, so I'm going to set this up to it. It's like everyone's having reactions to industrialization yeah. essentially and, and, John, and, and give a, and give a very are... give a very brief preface on uh scholasticism if you will just in a few like what do we mean by scholasticism oh man <laughs> uh, okay all right so i'll talk more about this in because i know about scholasticism more in terms of when we talk about it as a system of thought that had very serious influence on gothic architecture um, so scholasticism, as I understand it here, uh, is that there's a um, it's a system of philosophy where you derive questions and answers to any kind of philosophical problem from first principles that are fairly immutable. Right. So you and take using the Aristotelian categories. Yeah, exactly. And you, you can you can fill out in full texture anything that you really could want to know about the universe. Um, but you have to do that work to get there. And that work, that project is, is not done because internal to the structure is multitudes, the multitude of. 
I just I try to draw that out now because it's central to this essentially what seems to be an essentially unresolvable tension where on the one hand you can try and recruit scholasticism and human reason as the necessary accomplices of true or necessary tools of achieving you know true religious faith and then on the other hand they can be presented as excesses of rationalism that are themselves yeah. uh, symptoms of the disease of modernism and so yeah so the, 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 that's the, famous, the central tension the famous sort of article format in the summa theologica which is thomas aquinas's great thing is you have like um a uh, series of, of objections to a yet to be stated conclusion, a counterstatement, the actual argument is being made, and then individual replies to the sort of possible objections, right? So it's this very sort of rigorous, rational uh, way uh, of approaching questions about faith. And, you know, the assumption is this is sort of an effective, useful way of getting to the divine. The There is a sort of movement against this. So, uh, you know, if you want to go to one of the hotbeds of intellectual theology in the church. You go to Peoria, Illinois in the 1880s, where you've got Bishop John Lancaster Spaulding, who at the laying of the cornerstone of Catholic University announced the end of the Thomistic era in Catholic thought and the beginning of a new experiment with modern philosophy and science. St. Thomas is a powerful intellect, but his point of view in all that concerns natural knowledge has long since vanished from sight. He didn't think that Europe should continue to be, quote, the object of awe and admiration for Catholics and, and argued, what a poverty of learning does the medieval scheme of education reveal? When we read the great names of the past, our eyes are dimmed by the glory of clouds tinged with the splendors of a sun that has set. <laughs> so that is, you know, there are these unruly new clergy and theologians who, who want to push for a more modern approach to questions of theology that is inflected with ideas about modern science, uh, democracy, and so on. Sociology, yep. economics, all of, all of that. Yeah. And I also think what's really interesting about the encyclical about, about Pius is that he, he, he attacks history also. He attacks history <laughs> as a, as a, um, as a method in saying that, you know, he basically makes an argument against the kind of social construction of various ideologies and forms of meaning as, as they unfurl across, across history, um, which, you know, so I felt personally attacked, by. (laughs) (laughs) but it's, uh, it's really interesting is that he sees this as uh, Phil, you talked about this earlier, a very deep rot at the at the very core of the our pathways of thought of how we how we you know conceive of anything really um, and I think that's what makes him so so nervous. Having struck at this root of immorality, they proceed to disseminate poison through the whole tree, so that there is no part of Catholic truth from which they hold their hand. None that they do not strive to corrupt. Further, none is, none is more skillful, none more astute than they in the employment of a thousand noxious arts, for they double the parts of rationalist and Catholic, and this so craftily that they easily lead the unwary into error. Okay, so there's sort of a couple major things that he's objecting to. One of them is what he calls 
agnosticism, right? Which is the idea that human reason cannot grasp the divine, right? We sort of can only approach the, we can only look at phenomena, right? Rejecting the idea that we can do anything more than what empiricism would allow us to do, right? And that I think is related to his issue with history, right? Or the way that history goes, because you, you sort of exclude all things that sort of smack of the miraculous. And then you kind of like bring, you bring the sort of the gospels and everything down to the most acceptable, like plausible according to a secular worldview account of what happened. And then you're not left with very much, right? And a sort of, um, one of the theologians who gets condemned as a modernist is this French theologian named Loisy, who initially is like a Catholic apologist and is, is sort of defending, you know, Protestants are using modern like his history and scriptural analysis to be like, look at all this, like the sacraments and the doctrine of Mary. That's all like later stuff that the church adds on and it's not a part of the early church, so it should be rejected. And Loisy is saying like it's tradition through which, you know, it's through tradition that we know, know God and that's the way that we do it. After he gets essentially kind of denounced, he goes more and more into this historical method. And by the end, and I'm, I'm borrowing from a, um, an article by, by R. Scott Appleby uh, on uh, the American relationship to this encyclical uh, in Commonweal, he sets himself in a trajectory that would confirm the papal warnings about the agnostic trajectory of modernism. Luisi's final historical sketch of Jesus is, quote, a village craftsman, naive and enthusiastic who believes the end of the world to be near at hand. He appears absurd to us as our dearest ideas will appear to our children's children. And I think that's in terms of, you know, history. It's like, okay, here's this figure that we find extraordinary. There's a paucity of, of you know, there's a few texts that we have. A lot of them attribute the divine to him. You scale that down, you take everything out, you turn him into just a normal village craftsman uh, is what you're left with, right? That's, uh, that's the sort of trajectory that he sees. If you, if, you, if you admit, you know, if you start going any bit down that path, right, that's where you're going to end up. Jesus is just a village craftsman, right? I, I just want to note really quickly this kind of the prejudice <laughs> against the craftsman as someone who has a very limited horizon I, this is actually it's, we laugh about it, but it's it's actually yeah. hugely important to what we're going to talk about later um, uh, when we when we get to to Gaudi. This the 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 kind of the use of um, uh, skilled labor as something that is uh, stunted in a way in terms of like it, the no philosophy can arise from skilled labor. Skilled labor um, is it, yeah, I think it's very telling about Loisy actually, and and a lot of this. And a lot of the prejudices that modernists who deserve their fair share of criticism as well, bring into their philosophy kind of as a, yeah, as so, a, a priori kind of fact. It's that intellectual, it's that intellectual prejudice, yeah. right? Like yeah. calling him the village craftsman is a way of dismissing him. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the other one is vital yeah. eminence, right? This is the idea that sort of religion is a motion of the heart. It has its orig origin, speaking more particularly of life, and a movement of the heart, which movement is called sentiment, right? So it's like um, we all have this sort of natural an impulse. Incredible phrase for it, though. Vital eminence is an, yeah. uh, a spectacular, spectacular phrase for, for capturing that. 
Right. And it, it, it's his worry there is it just turns it into a kind of purely subjective experience. And we sort of join together in churches to tell each other about these, you know, powerful experiences we've had. But there's, you know, their origin is in us, ultimately. Yeah. And right? he says explicitly at one point, if you are going to make this kind of experiential vitalism, the basis of religious belief, in what sense can you say Catholicism, Catholicism takes priority or is more true or real than Islam? He said, you know, doesn't uh, a Muslim have um, the same inner experience of belief? Um, and, you know, it's an, it's an obvious point, but the, uh, the, what's interesting about it is that, of course, this is being directed not at, you know, radical subjectivists in any sense that we would recognize. This is being directed at venerable brethren, let me tell you. Yeah. This is being directed at people who, I, as I understand it, are see themselves at least as faithful Catholics, right? As members of the church. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, and, some of the uh, people who get denounced as modernists in the wake of this um, you know, like the now blessed Andrea Fer Ferrari, right? Uh, you know, there's a decent number of folks who are now blessed you know, meaning up. has been beatified or or uh, something else. They're like different, <laughs> different. Sort well, of, but some kind of like yeah. venerated uh, exactly after yes. death. Yeah. Um, yeah, and um, there's sort of like stages that you go through. Um, and yeah, he was you know he was somebody who is, you know, accused of modernism and, and, you know, as, as I said, like significant figures within the church, both in, especially in Europe and America, um, including folks who kind of later get vindicated with Vatican too. Right. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're talking, uh, about this in the wake of the death of Pope Benedict and kind of in the American political consciousness, Benedict is often seen as a conservative because of how he came down on kind of like, um, culture war issues in the United States, right? But theologically, he, he would be one of the targets of this because in this manuscript, in this encyclical, the, the Pope says like, how do you, like, what is the, the sure sign that somebody is a, uh, is, is a modernist or has like dangerously modernist tendencies. They, they're, they're not into scholasticism, right? Uh, that's, that's how you tell. And Benedict was not a fan of sort of modern scholasticism. They gave an interview in 1994 when, so this, this encyclical after it came out, um, sort of put the slap down on modernists and said, you know, Thomism, this is going to be the kind of bedrock from which we're, we're doing our, our further theological investigations. Right. And it really kind of contracted theological thought and, and, um, from, basically here until, uh, and then sort of people start trying to kind of get around it in Vatican II is this, is this shift. And, and Benedict was, was around it in that time, but Benedict referring to this period of theology, when everything had been sort of pushed back into this kind of Thomistic box, he says, the theology of the first half of the 20th century was more balanced, but also more closed within itself. 
Much of that theology lived inside the box of neo-scholasticism. It had greater certainty and logical lucidity than today's theology, but it was far removed from the real world. The adventure that began in the council took theology out of that box and exposed it to the fresh air of today's life. Consequently, this exposed it to the risk of new unbalances since it was a subject to divergent tendencies without the protect protection of a system. This caused theology to look for new balances in the context of an open and lively dialogue with today's reality. This step seems to me not only justified, but also necessary, because theology should serve faith and evangelization, and for this reason must face reality as it is today. Therefore, it was a just and necessary step, although a risky one, but risk is part of a necessary adventure. <clears throat> so, you know, dangerously modernist Pope, Pope Benedict. Dangerously. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by the kind of centrality of scholasticism in this. And, you know, scholasticism, it seems to me, and I know this is reductive, but again, part of what we seem to be talking about here is to what degree is human reason generative of religious experience versus a medium through which an extrinsic, inviolable, religious experience and dogma can be apprehended because if I understand this correctly, like would it be, does reason generate the, does it is human reason what generates dogma for instance, or is dogma the apprehension of divine edict through elected representatives of the divine in the church? Like if dogma is inviolable, um, and can't evolve. And this is one of the central uh, distinctions between the modernist position and the, I guess, what at the time you would have just called the orthodox um, papal position. Where, what generates dogma? Where does dogma come from? Divine revelation. Like it's, right. the, it's the, it is the, the, you know, and then everything else is, Everything else is an investigation into dogma, which could be a sentence, but contains infinity in that in that revelation, right? So it's like everything is within it. There's nothing. It didn't come. You know, we we just have to continue to investigate this, and that's where all the doctrines and the laws and all of that kind of stuff spills out of spills out of the interpretation of, of dogma, maybe, which is itself revealed, not created. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, philosophically, that makes sense to me. And I understand uh, then especially the distinction between revelation and vital imminence in terms of um, where authentic, um, authentic, uh, religious understanding originates yeah. or understanding is sort of the wrong word authentic religious experience i guess um but no i think understanding is a very apt word for it i mean it's all about the the, the whole purpose of theology is to is to use that that to to seek understanding I mean, that's one of the at least as i re, i remember right. from from high school, Bill. Though it's funny, sort of. You know, you have a responsibility to try to try yeah. to understand. 
to continue. And it's it's you're you're probably not going to get there, but you have a responsibility to continue. And, but, and even but even that has Thomas, a limit. Yeah. So no, Saint Thomas right, famously. There's a, yeah. Go ahead. On the uh, on the feast of Saint Nicholas, there's this sort of famous. Thomas Aquinas is, is celebrating mass and has a revelation that affects him so powerfully that he stops writing, right? Leaving the Summa unfinished. And he says, the end of my labors has come. All that I have written appears to be as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. And uh, when he was asked by a, a fellow brother to, to return to writing, he said, I can write no more. I've seen things that make my writings like straw. Relatable, bro. Yeah. Relatable. <laughs> the... Uh, uh, I, I I love that. It's it's not that the that this like massive work of genius is is utterly repudiated, but I think it's sort of that there there are these kind of limits, right? Um, Benedict, another quote from Pope Benedict: "Better witness is born to the Lord by the splendor of holiness and art which have arisen in the community of believers than by clever excuses which apologetics has come up with to justify the dark sides, which sadly are so frequent in the church's human history." And Balthasar and, and Pope John Paul were affected by Hans Urs von Balthasar, um, uh, uh, who had a sort of theology of beauty, right? Um, uh, which sometimes puts him at odds with the the Thomas. And so, I, you know, I read something like this, and on on the one hand, I like I know what he's talking about, and these tendencies, I think. It, it makes sense. It makes sense to me that a pope is looking at a church where there are these huge disputes over what it should be and trying to give it some sort of theological backbone, right, and identity. Um, and also rejecting these kind of like, you know, let's make like this concession, this concession to make the faith more reasonable. Um, there's a bit in Cormac McCarthy's most recent novel, The Passenger, which I loved, actually, um, you know. Uh, it's the funniest. I gotta part. read it. It's I'm like, really looking forward to it. I was shocked by how funny it was. You know, like I hated the road, which seems so like self serious and ridiculous. Um, I, I, it, it, the road is totally self serious and ridiculous, and I loved it. But, <laughs> but utterly self serious and ridiculous. I, you know, I feel like I laugh at McCarthy the way like I laugh at David Cronenberg or something. Or, um, <laughs> oh, I, I laughed there, there like I put the book down and McCarthy just ultra violence is hilarious. when yeah. I was, yeah. Like there's at one point in the road, somebody's like roasting a baby on a stick and I'm yeah, like, um, but yeah, the, the passenger I enjoyed oh. immensely. Um, and there's a bit where one of the characters who's actually like a schizophrenic hallucina hallucination, uh, it's, it, you know, there's these conversations about like basically what is the nature of reality and what's real and what's not. Uh, and, and he says, if you scratch from the menu, everything that's hard to swallow, it's going to make for a pretty lean lunch. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the modernists are like, you know, trying to like, you know, I like some of this stuff is weird. Like, so, but you know, there is a religious impulse everybody has. They're trying to. All right. But hold on. But that's retconning to, I don't think that's how they understood it. I don't no. think they thought well, so, that they he, were. He, he, uh... This is the thing. I think a lot of what they were doing was reasonable and great. And this encyclical just, I think really tries to crush the intellectual life of the church, right? Sometimes this 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 encyclical is loved by like modern conservatives and reactionaries. And so you'll see right. you can find online everything. I think that's from, how like, I discovered it. 
Yeah. yeah, like totally unhinged, like, you know, people who think that everything that happened after, you know, 1273 uh, was just one big downward slide, right? Um, but you'll also find like kind of slick, actually, uh, Scalia's son, who's a priest, Father Paul Scalia has a, has a talk on this where he kind of like softens it. He, 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 he does his own kind of modernism, like softening the edges of this. And he's like, he just kind of describes it in the sense of like, oh, here are these like obvious errors and the Pope is pointing them out in the modern world. And isn't that great? Um, whereas what this actually did in practice was it crushed the ability of people to try and kind of push the doctrine forward, find new ways of talking about the faith to... Americans and <laughs> and other people and find theological tools to to express religion and okay, to respond but to, to attacks. On, take away yeah. the normative aspects for a second. Forget about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, and just to understand it on its own terms. Um, it that's to some. I mean, it was trying to do that. No, and and also the modernists as intellectually vigorous and interesting as they were, I don't know enough about them to say, but I'm, I'm wondering whether within the modernist camp, there was a recognition of the ways in which the, let's say to take a specific sort of doctrinal impulse, the, imminent, what, what does he call it? Vital imminence, which it, I don't know how present that was among Catholic modernists. So it's hard mm -hmm. for me to adjudicate any of this, but I completely, I, I immediately recognized vital imminence as a component of what I think of as modernist approaches to religion and faith sure. outside of Catholicism and also how it also shows up in it also shows up in architecture, the decorative arts, all of this kind of thing. The the, the I think I mean, it's chiefly a aesthetic. It. Vitalism is a, yeah, a huge, right. yeah. It's a it's a huge huge kind of movement about about how do, how do we how do we conceive of what generates um, art really, or what 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 is it? And it's this this kind of biological force, right? That that and you know part of it is. We're reading about Darwin. And this is what I mean. That's a romantic impulse. Change. That's not an enlightenment it impulse. Is. It is. So it's interesting because no, it's very much a nineteenth right. century. And you yeah. think of the oath against modernism as being counter enlightenment fundamentally, but vital imminence is you know in in a sense there's a direct connection to German Pietism, which gives birth to aesthetic and artistic movements of romanticism. But I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, I'm not trying to take a position, you know, on one side or the other. And I completely understand how this would have uh, stifled. I mean, obviously it was like excommunicating people. It would not be, this is not the way to encourage a lively conversation, right. but I, it was a I'm just journal asking, in New York and they like the editor got fired and then the priests were all like farmed out to different parishes in like the Bronx, wherever said so they couldn't be together. Did you know, they like, rec like, how did they respond at the time? I guess is what I'm asking. W was there a recognition among the so-called, among the putative modernists? Was there a sense that these are real dangers, but were being falsely accused or was the reaction like, 
this is crazy. You're snuffing out. Uh, I mean, I guess you can't tell the Pope what he's doing is crazy, but what was the reaction? How did Here's they William feel? L. Sullivan. You have left untried no expedient for separating Catholics into a mass of illiterates unacquainted with the scholarship of the last hundred years and closed in by an opaque curtain of medieval exegesis and scholastic theology. And if we ask, who is this pontiff who defies the laborious acquisitions of four generations of illustrious scholars? We must answer, he is the product of an Italian seminary of 50 years ago, who is an absolute stranger to the sciences he condemns. He knows nothing of biblical criticism. He entered his pontificate ignorant of every modern language but italian he is unread in philosophy in historical theology in modern psychology well, that's super interesting now um, sullivan by the way ultimately becomes a unitarian um oh so you know the pope would be like minute. see i told you right 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 wait a minute wait a minute he ultimately becomes a unitarian wait now the minute. question is would he have gone that way if he had not been condemned by the pope you know right. in such strident terms right you know there's mm. there's there are different ways of you know from a of of, of tempting people into a loss of faith and one of them is by shutting mm. down the reasonable exercise of, of people's intellectual faculties in the, in the, in, in the attempt to apprehend the divine. Um, but yeah. So I, I want to, I want to jump in here and talk about some architecture a little bit, uh, yeah, because I think it. it's really relevant to this. So, so the, this idea of there is one kind of one emanating authority on how things are done and how things are interpreted. And that is scholasticism, or that is this medieval framework of thinking, you know, that this, this idea shows up in a lot of other kind of intellectual disciplines too, right? So it, it very much shows up in architecture as well, especially around modernism, where there's this idea of what is the, what is the nature of criticism? Is it right to criticize someone else's buildings what what is what's the point of criticizing someone else's buildings and this isn't just the um you know writing in the new york times saying i don't really like this new building or something like that or saying that it's deficient in some way but criticism is a way of kind of intellectually engaging with what the architect is trying to do right what the intellectual content of this building is and then through this understanding which is intellectualized in stone and also intellectualized verbally, we can project a kind of furthering of this discipline. That the discipline can change, and it can, we can reach a different, a, a deeper understanding of how humans design buildings, what it means to design buildings, how buildings can evolve, how our practice of architecture can evolve. So this this historian Manfredo Tafuri, who is a famous 20th century Italian historian and criticism of, of architecture, says that the act of writing and thinking about architecture is as intellectually engaging as not only architecture itself, but pretty much any other intellectual pursuit that you can do. That thinking about it is the same way. You're just using different objects or tools of thought in order to get at a very much deeper understanding of, of something, something about the human condition. And so he says that criticism is, is hugely important. This is why he does criticism. This is why he writes about buildings as opposed to being an architect, because it's about engaging with humanity in that way. The person he uses to kind of fortify or buttress his argument as a method, as an intellectual method, is a German art historian named Erwin Panofsky, who wrote a book called Gothic Architecture and Scholasticism. And 
Tafuri, who's, you know, he lives in, in you know, in, uh, I think he lives in Venice in the 60s and the 70s. Why does he think that Gothic architecture and scholasticism is like the, the, the foundation of uh, the intellectual kind of content of his discipline? He says that Panofsky made this really groundbreaking argument about architecture and the intellect. Panofsky's argument is basically that though the craftsmen who were building the Gothic cathedrals at the same time as the Thomas School is doing their scholastic, fitting out their scholastic kind of philosophy, though those craftsmen didn't read scholasticism, had no direct kind of intellectual exchange with the guys inside laboring over their philosophical manuscripts, you can't think of them as two kind of parallel intellectual developments, that they are intertwined and that the habits of scholasticism infected the habits of the mental habits of pretty much everybody who was working at that time. And that even though the, the stone cutter at the cathedral didn't read Aquinas, he was still operating from the same basic principles that Aquinas was operating from. And so this to me is really kind of fascinating because it talks about intellectual development as a, it's like, you know, we can talk about theological arguments and the construction of those. We can talk about buildings and it's the same, or, or there, there are, it's more than parallel what the kind of intellectual content is that's happening in these buildings. So I think this is what we're talking about, the criticism. It, like, is criticism a threat? No, criticism is how we continue to develop intellectual structures. This is what this is what we do. And so Pius is against it. The modernists were criticizing, though, and I think this is this is the why ultimately this encyclical we look at it is kind of like not relevant to us nowadays because we're committed to to criticism as an intellectual tool. An intellectual tool to what end? Okay, so an intellectual this is tool where to the I, deepening of the you, revealed, or an intellectual tool to the apprehension of a human truth, assuming there's a distinction there. Yeah. If we were going to invite Anthony Gaudi on this and ask him what the truth was that he was looking for. And I think he would have entertained the question. He would say, it's a divine truth. It is, it is way beyond me. I am, but right, that's why he's going back to the source uh, using nature. A, a, right. It, it, absolutely. And he, I mean, he is, he's basically a Gothic architect. He's essentially a Gothic architect. And I'll explain a little bit more about why, why I make that argument. And I'm not the only one that, that makes that argument. If we asked a Renaissance architect, what they are searching for, they would say, it is, uh, or they, they might make the argument that yes, it's, it's divine revelation, but really it is a, um, it's a humanism. What I'm doing is, is a humanism. It's, it's a, it's a humanistic study. And there's a tension in architecture between this, between, you know, is the, like, well, what is the final piece of architecture? Is there an ultimate architecture? No, there isn't. We make buildings that are versions of arguments about what what an ultimate kind of understanding of architecture could be. We're never going to finish. 
but we're we're working also, towards okay. bookmark. And I I will I know that I know that you guys are looking at no me no like no, you're no I'm not, I don't, but, know. But I don't this, think that's yes. this is really no, I don't the, think so at all. The, yeah, yeah. I was reading. <laughs> so this is this is really interesting. So and and maybe we should switch to because our art is going to be Gaudi's Sagrada Familia. But I was reading. There's a bit. Um, Jonathan McGregor has an art, article on sacred architecture, right? And he begins talking about the Willa Cather novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop, um, mm. which is, you know, around this time period. And part of it is about the construction of a church, right? And at one point, Cather's father, Latour, quips, it would be a shame to make another ugly church on this continent where there are already so many, right? <laughs> and uh, I've, I've been in a few of them. Um, uh, by the way, amusingly enough, uh, I went to mass last Sunday in a, in a quite nice church. It's not ugly. It's it's lovely. Um, it's St. Pius X, Roman Catholic Church. So I was like reading this encyclical and not really liking it. And then and then I went, <laughs> went to St. Pius. Uh, anyway, um, and the Latour says, I want a plain church, but I want a good one. I shall certainly never lift my hand to build a clumsy affair of red brick like an English coach house. Our own midi Romanesque is the right style for this country. And then McGregor writes, Latour's cathedral will partake of the New Mexican landscape, incarnating beauty for its particular environment, much like the cruciform juniper tree he encounters in the book's opening scene. His definition of beauty aims for the universal, but it doesn't neglect the particularities of time and place. Latour then possesses three criteria for judging the beauty of church architecture, plain, good, and fitting. And the greatest of these, perhaps, is plainness. Um <clears throat> Now you you definitely could not call yeah. uh, Sagrada Familia plain. I, I don't yeah, think there's, no. there's, there's a no, there's a Bartholomew yeah. short story where characters talking about going to the Sagrada Familia and it's like looking up into the Sagrada Familia. I realize that not only is less is more, but also sometimes more is more as well. You know what's so incredible about it? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm putting a bookmark here to respond both to this question of what is the function of criticism and, and the relationship between criticism and um, religious devotion as applies an incredible anecdote, John, you, you might already be familiar with this about the debate about what should happen to the not at all, maybe 20% completed Sagrada Familia after Gaudi died, John looks like he knows this very well. I, I was amazed. I, Phil, I'll get to regale you with it. Um, but this is like the the incredible thing. Um, I, I was there in 2017 and was in the church, and I was I didn't even know what to make of it. It was the most one of the most incredible spaces I've ever entered in my life. And the experience of being inside of it is totally different from standing outside and looking at the, uh, the nativity scene. And it's, it is somehow, and this I think has to do with the way in which it comes from Gaudi's experience of nature. It's not at all like any other Gothic church I've ever seen. It's nothing like the sort of gilded churches um, that I had seen on the same trip in Rome and Naples. I heard a word used to describe it that just clicked for me all of a sudden, which was fractal, which is both, I think, evocative of the way in which it plays off the patterns of nature. And also, first of all, I think of it as like 
very snail shell like in its fractal patterns and in its sort of opening and closing curves. And also it's like simultaneously very, I know this is a strange word to apply to it, but like it is plain in certain ways and from certain angles where like there are these grand sweeps of empty space that don't all, they're not filled up in that Baroque way. Yeah. And, and so it's strange to maybe plain is the wrong word, but it's like, it's really, I, I, I've never seen, and I mean, this is the most obvious thing to say about it. But you, you will never see anything else. I've never else seen like anything it. It else is, like it. Is, yeah. it and, and you won't. It's just yeah. unbelievable. And let's do, the history is so incredible. You, you, you were going to tell the, the anecdote. So to set the anecdote up, I'm going to run through like a super quick, um, John, cover your ears, because I'm sure a, a, a architecture, a historian, uh, guy is going to be very offended by how crude this is, but I, I'm going to do the very quick version and then you fill in any significant details I leave out. Um, so Gaudi is not the first architect assigned to Sagrada Familia. There's this uh, rich Catholic newspaper baron in Spain, whose name I'm forgetting, who commissions the construction of this church that he wants to be devoted to or in, in honor of the sacred family, which is Mary Joseph Jesus, I'm assuming is the sacred family. Okay, so he gets an architect. He doesn't like that architect, has a dream. The rich newspaper baron has a dream that the guy to complete this church, the guy to build the sacred family church in what is then the outskirts of Barcelona, not the center of the city, is going to be a... A uh, blue-eyed, red-haired man. I, 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 and then, as legend has it, the very next day, he goes to an architecture studio, meets Gaudi, who's virtually unknown at the time, um, had sort of developed a reputation in school, but is hardly famous in Barcelona, let alone anywhere outside of Barcelona. He says, you're the guy, <laughs> you know, you fit the, you know... Um, Dreams are important, right? We just uh, um, just recently finished all the the uh, uh, Bible chapters about Joseph in the in the Parsha, and um, you know dreams are important. So he sees this red-haired, um, blue-eyed guy. It's Gaudi. Gaudi starts designing the church. It is at the point he takes over. I think only the crypt has been built, which is this inner portion of the church. He starts to build it. He has these incredibly elaborate designs. Then he dies, I believe, in 1926. And when he dies, only something like 20% of the church has been built. Uh, but it, now, it's, it's worth knowing he, he'd lived like an ascetic life. His clothes were ratty. One of the reasons that he dies, he gets hit uh, by like a tram or a car. Oh, forget. right, right, right. Yeah, no, two days later. think he's a beggar. Yeah, yeah. So they bring right. him to the poor people's hospital where he gets terrible care and dies because nobody realizes that it's Gaudi. Right. And that asceticism is part of his deep Catholic faith. So he is a pious Catholic and sees the building of the church as a sacred mission. And deliberately, um, there are a number of things that he does sort of in the design of the church that are essentially 
acts of uh, sort of piety and, and ways of um, sort of there are limits, constraints he places on the church to ensure that it's um, like it can't be higher than, than the he, mountain because it can't be bigger than God. Yeah, right. Um, so then Gaudi dies. And there were and religious right dimensions at, to all of his buildings. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah, are all, all over Barcelona all, and yeah, all yeah. have this. I, I'll let John talk about this style. I'm, I won't do it justice, but the, it's, let us say, very distinct. So quickly, the anecdote is after he dies, what happens? The Spanish Civil War breaks out. The church is on the side of the uh, Francoists and, and the nationalists. So comes under, I don't mean the specific church, Sagrada Familia. I mean the Catholic Church in Spain is uh, aligned with the Francoists and the nationalists, which is what you would expect at the time. And so comes under attack from, I can't remember if it was a communist or an anarchist faction. I believe it One was an anarchist faction. Factions. Yeah, I think that's right. Catalonia. Ah, right. And yeah. he was a Catalan, right? Gaudi was a Catalan. Very, very deeply, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Deeply Catalan. And so they, the anarchists enter the church, go into Gaudi's studio, and destroy all of the remaining model plaster models and plans. They smash the plaster models with hammers in a fit of iconoclasm and then burn the studio down. And what happens in the aftermath is, and I, I won't tell the full story here, but you know, essentially there's an attempt to reconstruct these plans and resurrect the building of the church. And what what happens when the, the plans for rebuilding the church are announced? There is a petition from Corbusier and other architects saying, don't go through with this because it's an affront to the artist, which is a funny thing to say about an artist building a church. And the people involved in the project say, no, it's not about the artist. Right. You know, he was building a church. We're going to go ahead. And to this day, the church is still not completed. They say 2026. I don't believe that for a second. Having been there uh, in 2017, I can't imagine with all the work they had to be done and the pace they're going at. But they say one day, perhaps it shall be completed. So that is my story. Um, right. The, 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 the modern architects and, want, and the want the thing unfinished as a tribute to individual genius, right? Which couldn't right. have been further right. from what Gaudi thought he was doing. Um, and yeah, uh, he, 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 yep. he would claim. Jake, you did it. You did yeah. a very good job. <laughs> you, you may be an architectural historian one day. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. You know, uh, I, yeah. I'm. You have the makings of a good <laughs> artificial story. Yeah. Consider this uh, my official tryout. I mean, if you can tell a story about a pile of rocks and make it interesting, what a, pi what a pile that's, of yeah, rocks! You're doing better than ninety percent. But John, the way, during, so during the Spanish Civil War, Orwell visited, right? And this is Orwell's uh, yeah, take yeah, on yeah. Sagrada Familia. For the first time since I'd been in Barcelona, I went to have a look at the cathedral, a modern cathedral, and one of the most hideous buildings in the world. It is four crenellated spires exactly like the shape of hawk bottles. Unlike most of the churches in Barcelona, it was not damaged during the revolution. It was spared because of its artistic value, people said. I think the anarchists showed bad taste in not blowing it up when they had the chance that they did hang they a red and black banner between its spires. Uh, my understanding is they tried and failed to, to yeah. blow it up after smashing up the studio. But right. yeah, that's a very Orwell 
Uh-like thing to say. It is... See, the, part of what's so interesting about discussing the church in relation to the encyclicals on modernism is that it, it's both... Is it modernist? I mean, it's people call it Gothic. They call it modernist. It's not clear to me. What, what would you say, John? Okay, so... All right, so this is the real the real crux of it here. All right, so Gaudi, he dies. The Spanish Civil War happens. An obscure pupil of his and all of the workmen continue to try to work on the Sagrada Familia. There's, you know, always trouble with funding. There's continual trouble with funding. So the work proceeds very, very, very slowly. And Gaudi is largely forgotten until... 1957, essentially, when, um, or at least he's largely forgotten in, in you know, the, the circles of elites that talk about what architecture is, what modern architecture is, what Gothic architecture is, make the definitions. Um, no better place to do that than the architecture and design department of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which sends Henry Russell Hitchcock, a um, professor of architectural history, out to Barcelona to do a catalog of Gaudi's work and put it um, on display in New York. And one of the reasons why they're doing this is that Gaudi had been dismissed for being way too Baroque to be a modernist, right? All the whirly gigs, <laughs> the ornamentation, all of this kind of stuff, completely anathema to the, um, you know, this, the steel, glass, concrete architecture that Le Corbusier and, and Mies van der Rohe are doing the machine age, modern, international style that emerges in the 1930s. So, of course, they dismiss them. But what happens is in the, in the 50s and in the 60s, you're starting to see breaks with um, this kind of orthodox, orthogonal, boxy modernism. And very highly regarded architects are starting to take interest in the swooping kind of sinuous forms that are available to them through modern engineering. So Ira Saarinen, for example, TWA terminal is under construction in 1957. TWA terminal is this beautiful. And, you know, Saarinen is a real, like, he really knows what he's doing. Like, he can, he can be a Miesian if he wants to, but he's also breaking out. Corbusier himself, with Ronchamp Chapel and with Chandigarh, is starting to experiment with these kind of swoopy um, forms that have kind of weird anthropological references. So even modernism itself is changing. So the the old stuff shirts at MoMA send Hitchcock off to Barcelona to go and assess this Catalan architect who, you know, is is a Baroque weirdo, neo Gothic, whatever, so strange guy, who thought of himself more of a, as a craftsman. He showed up on site every day, showed up on site every day and led the morning prayer with all the workers every day. And then they all went to work. Like he, he's the son of a coppersmith. He's like, he's like, he is, he really is almost medieval. He's there on site. They, they yep. make decisions about details, how they're going to resolve certain things there. There are very few kind of detail level drawings that he does because he wants to be there and 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 resolve things in person. It's very medieval in practice. So Hitchcock goes and, and does this, assembles the the this show in New York, and it really revives this interest in Gaudi and the and not only the Sagrada Familia, but also the uh, Park Guell, which he designs for his patron, who's the textile magnate, um, Eusebi Guell, who who really, I mean, the ties with 
Catalan industrialization and becoming a major industrial powerhouse in Spain is also um, really important to think about here too. So Gaudi is, because he's dead, his reputation gets batted around by all sorts of different all sorts of different people, and you know there, you'll run into people who, like Pevsner, who wrote the book on modern architecture, says that he's Art Nouveau. He's the you know the the last branch of that, and we shouldn't really pay attention to him. But he's he's Art Nouveau. Other people say that he's he's um, he is a modernist. The Catalans claim him as one of the the modernist Catalans in this modernist style, because he really is doing things very very different from like he's not replicating the methods and details of Gothic architects in France. He's doing entirely new things. So when I say that he's a Gothic architect, I want to qualify it um, here. And I'm going to go back to talk a little bit more about what Phil said about the church in New Mexico, the idea of the church being simple, right? The idea of a church, what what does the ideal church look like? To some habits of thought, the ideal church is austere, symmetrical. Um, it is a, it is arranged in harmonious proportions, not only in the ground plan, but also in its section, the shape and form of the dome, the proportions of the dome in relationship to the, the rest of the dimensions in the, in the church, all of this kind of stuff. This governs a lot of church building in the new world, especially, um, especially in Latin America. This is a very Renaissance way of thinking about what a church is, an architectural theory of, of the church. And so I'm going to go back to um, a priest, actually, who was a priest and an architect. Uh, you probably heard of him, Leon Battista Alberti, who is really the founder of what we think, what the intellectual practice of architecture that we're still kind of involved in. And so Alberti is a polymath. He lives in the 15th century in, in Italy. Um, he's a priest in Rome. He's involved with all sorts of stuff. He's one of the founders of modern cryptography, translator, um, well-known, though, for his treatise on architecture and for building, like, three buildings um, uh, around, around Rome. They're all, most of them are churches. So Alberti, as part of the Renaissance, uncovers the ancient writings on architecture, Vitruvius. Vitruvius has ten books on architecture and updates them, basically, by not just kind of replicating them or unearthing them, but by doing this kind of criticism and incorporating Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy into a theory of architecture that is based in the classical world, but is is new, is 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 vibrant, new, is intellectually engaging, um, is as much of an art form as any of the other kind of, you know, intellectual forms that are happening in the Renaissance at the time. Alberti bases it on this platonic geometry. He says that you start from, if you're going to design a church, you start from perfect forms, and then you elaborate on those perfect forms, so the sphere and the square, and then you you basically build in a series of proportions that are defined a harmonious elaboration on that form, and that becomes your your the basis of your architecture. Your structure conforms to it. Your space conforms to it. The facade conforms to it or relates to it all mathematically. This is very austere, very kind of heady. If you want to, for those of you listening at home and for you two staring at me right now, if you want to Google the facade of the Santa Maria Novella, um, which is a church in Florence, very famous church in Florence, he completed the facade of this 
the there's a diagram that you can also find on Google that shows the extremely intricate proportional system that governs basically every decision that is made. In the oh yeah, I'm looking at it facade, now. Right? So it's multiple layers, multiple layers. Um, it's based on uh, the the historian Rudolf Wittkover wrote a whole book basically about how this is all based on theories of musical harmony. So there's a there's a concordance with a different the idea that the harmony brings the church goer into is it that it aligns the church goer with the natural harmonies that are revealing of god's presence is it has nothing to do with the church goer they don't care at all about the church goer this is a work of art it has it mostly has to do with god right and i mean the famous line from gaudi right is that you know why are you taking so long to build the sagrada familia and he's like my client has all the time in the universe like, <laughs> literally like he is not in a rush <laughs> at all here so so the the it is a i mean there it's a space it's for people to congregate in but intellectually and this is something that alberti i mean i we can fault him for it's not about, it's a humanism, but it's about humans, a human intellectual capacity to make something that is harmonious with these systems, mathematical systems that govern the universe, right? And they can be derived from nature, found in nature, but the, the architecture is a way of, of like speaking in this divine language. And yes, Sure, it should be edifying for the people who use it, but that's not the you point. Think it's not Gaudi didn't well, it is it's a, not the point. So so this is where I'm this is where I'm gonna uh this is where it, it changes a little bit. Uh, so I so Alberti is famous for being one of the first architects to do drawings and to not be interested at all in being on the site. Doesn't care at all about the methods of construction. In his book, actually, he has um, diagrams of floor plans and of, of facade systems and, and um, also of infrastructure. So viaducts, all part of architecture at that day. There wasn't a split between architect and engineer. It was all the same kind of practice. He has pictures of construction systems like cranes, like how do you lift up a hugely heavy stone block? There are no humans operating the cranes. There are no people in any of it at all. He like does not care at all about especially the common man, the worker who would be lifting up cranes and doing all this kind of stuff, right? So this is a, when when we think about it, people point to this as the birth of the modern profession of architecture. Someone who sits and does drawings, sends them off to someone else who executes them. And the very act of drawing or merely just thinking about a building, that is enough to be an intellectual activity. You don't actually need to build anything. You can just do architecture as an intellectual activity at a desk with a pencil and paper. There are some people that might even say you can do architecture without even drawing. You can just do it as a as a as a thought. Um, that's a little esoteric for for me, but this this is the the foundation of that split between we see architects as, as professionals who have knowledge and execute knowledge in a certain way, and then there are people who build things. And there's a distinction between these two, intellectual and one that's kind of more more kind of rote. I have a lot of problems with this, but this is this is really this is the moment, right, when architecture as a study happens. So to go back to Panofsky, 
and to talk about Gaudi's relationship with materials and Gaudi's relationship with workers and Gaudi's relationship with how buildings relate to kind of people. So Panofsky says that it's probably a mistake to think that the intellectual content of architecture really only begins in the Renaissance because he sees intellectual content in the Middle Ages with these scholastics, with these, these men who aren't architects, and it's usually men, unfortunately. They're not architects. They're not professionals. They are stonecutters. They cut stone. They build things with stone. The guys who built Reims and Chartres were there on the site. They were masters. They were absolutely brilliant artists, but they cut stone. Right? And that's what that's what they did. He says he writes this in his book, Gothic Architect, in his book, Gothic Architecture and Scholasticism, where the humanistic mind demanded a maximum of harmony. He's talking about the Renaissance here. So the humanistic mind demanded a maximum of harmony, impeccable diction and writing, impeccable proportion, so sorely missed in Gothic structures by Vasari in architecture. Vasari was a was a Renaissance theorist who dismissed an awful lot of Gothic architecture as not having this kind of intellectual ambition. Panofsky writes, the scholastic mind demanded a maximum of explicitness. It accepted and insisted upon a gratuitous clarification of function through form, just as it accepted and insisted upon a gratuitous clarification of thought through language. So this is where I make the case that Gaudi is a Gothic mm. architect, because Gaudi is absolutely fascinated with the central problem that the Gothic architects, that his, his kind of kinsmen in the 13th century were trying to do, which is the central problem is really simple. You have all this really heavy stuff. How do you make it stand up? And how do you get light through it? And how, does it, how do you make it kind of approach the glory that you know, is this, this task that you, you have here? How do you do all these yeah. kinds of things? So the stonemasons in France in the 13th century use their very intimate knowledge with materials and their intuitive understanding of gravity, lateral forces, all these kinds of things that engineers nowadays talk about and we have equations to explain it to us. They used basically knowledge that was deeply embedded in them through years and years Guild of apprenticeship knowledge. practice. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, it's guild knowledge, but, you know, the guild can have knowledge, but to in order to kind of like really feel. okay, I can build this taller than I've ever seen ever before. As thin and attenuated before, you know, twice as thin and attenuated than has ever been attempted by anyone else in my guild. I can do this because I have faith in my knowledge of this material and how to build. And I'm going to employ this knowledge in order to approach approach a kind of a higher achievement, a higher ambition, essentially. This is what Gaudi's doing, too. Gaudi, he is on the site because he loves these materials and he loves structures and how they behave. He loves how gravity gets transferred through bricks and stone and how using your knowledge and fairly simple tools to assist you in that knowledge, you can construct things that are 
I mean, that reveal truths, I mean, quite literally reveal truths in that he, his, his kind of standard arch is not your typical Romanesque or Gothic arch. Gothic arches come to a point, right? Romanesque arches are usually semicircles. His arch is a catenary arch. And a catenary arch is basically if you weight a, a string evenly, it will, it will, it will assume a form essentially. It'll assume a form. So any suspension bridge that you ever ever see, the 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 geometry of the arc of the suspension is a, is a parabolic shape. We can describe it mathematically now, but the way you can use it without using calculus, or the way you can describe it without using calculus is you get a string and you hang weights off of it. And then you, you have the shape, this kind of dip shape that's parabolic, enormously, enormously, or hyperbolic, um, enormously complex mathematically to describe. You flip it upside down and turn that into the arch and it will distribute the forces in this extremely natural way. So underneath the church, the Santa Colonna church, um, which he does for Guell out at the textile mills outside of Barcelona, there's a model that Gaudi used. It's an upside down model of the church where he has all of these strings that represent each of the arches and he weights them all. Those strings conform to their, their kind of natural form, their natural catenary shape. And that becomes the three-dimensional basis for constructing the church right side up. So he's his obsession with nature is more than like, I like flowers, I like things yeah. that look flowery. He is talking about these really, really complex inner truths, maybe. I mean, I feel like I'll get strung up in an architecture school saying things like truth or beauty, but but I'm, my door is locked, <laughs> so I can, I can get away with this for now. Um, the thing that's remarkable... That's what he's after, and this is, this is what makes him gothic to I, me. You know... Um... I don't listen. I simply don't know enough about what the criteria for Gothic architecture is. I, it sounds everything you've said was fascinating in it, and I'm convinced. And it, I can see the fascinating thing is like everything you've said makes sense also visually when I think about my experience there. And yet, it's not difficult at all to imagine Orwell or somebody of that proclivity walking into the space with a different context and thinking, oh, this is modernist garbage. Like you can see a kind of easy Philistinism in relation to that church that misses all of that, takes these sort of unusual arch patterns, takes this anti-symmetrical form and rather than understanding it to be a kind of almost like naturalistic gothic like fractal gothic design instead you know and i do think it's like a you know you can listen you read that orwell passage and he's sort of delighting in being a philistine about it in a very uh orwell kind of way and and it's not hard to understand that but it's just it is anti-modern in my conception, for the reasons you just described, beginning with the relationship to the material and ending in the kind of 
telos of it, it's really got very little to do. Not only does it have nothing to do with modernism in that sense, it's, it is anti-modern in that sense. But the, the thing, John, that I'm not sure I ever fully understood your response to was how you think Gaudi thought of the person inside the church. I understand that the previous or other architects were unconcerned with the individual and were only thinking about the building as a monument to God. And I know that Gaudi obviously thought of himself as working on, on God's timeline, but the play of light inside that, inside Sagrada Familia, the experience of it, it certainly feels to me. Also the rigorously if, worked out symbolism, you know? Yeah, yeah, and that is a didact, and it is didactic. That symbolism, it is. I, I mean, mean it's, you're it's one of the to... one of the sculptors is a um, famously. There's a, a Japanese sculptor, who um, uh, Itsuro Sotu, who began working on the Sagrada Familia, who converted to Catholicism as a result of like working in this church and and really like getting utterly invested in in, in Gaudi's art. He said. Uh, who said of, of the church, this basilica will help humanity mature. Those who do not feel that here may not feel it anywhere. A, uh, a judgment yeah, on Orwell. <laughs> he, was, he was working on the I, facade. He was working on the... Uh, or he's on working the, on the uh, statues, yeah. And, um, on the statuary. I believe he's still working so, on, yeah. So for people who haven't seen it, there is one facade, and it is... A, I mean, I don't even know how... You, it's not... It is not a four-sided shape, this church, but there is one kind of central facade that is full of statuary that is relating these stories. The nativity. There's the nativity facade, there's the the, um, passion, and then there's going to be the glory facade, yeah. Oh, those are different facades. These these are, yeah. These are all kind of standard iconographic programs that are, you know, very much easily incorporated into you know, what the what the Gothic architects in France were doing in the in the 13th century too, where they had a structure and then they integrated into this structure and the attenuation of this structure, the the, the lightness of this structure, an iconographic program that very much was meant to be didactic. But the light, the stained glass windows the awe-inspiring totality of it was as much a part of, you know, what they're trying to communicate as, as the iconography. And they all mutually reinforce one another. I think that, that um, I think to answer, and I know we're running out of time, so I want to, I want to answer your question here. Gaudi did care about what people thought because he saw himself as, you know, we talked at the very, very beginning of this, the art and the aesthetics of the laity, right? And the art, the development of these kind of supporting structures that are outside of the curia, right? Um, and very democratic way of thinking about things. He thought about that because he saw, or at least I think that there are, in a lot of building cultures, there are ways, forms of expression of trying to get to understand these higher modes or, or higher ambitions for their art that don't have to spring from being a formal member of the of the the um, of the the priesthood, that the laity can express this as well, and that a lot of this, you know, the 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 cathedral projects in medieval Europe were lay expressions of 
of it. I mean, they were hugely, hugely, profoundly. And I mean, the sheer amount of humanity that these buildings chewed up. I mean, they went through several master stonemasons, generations of workers that lived there. I mean, it is the product of an enormous amount of, of outlay. And I think that there is like any kind of craftsmanship, there's a pride in in doing that, that's not really accessible to the architecture of the, of the Renaissance in, in, in a way. So I want to end with, with or, or, or I don't, I don't, I'm not <laughs> declaring an end to this, but, but I, w- I do want to get this in here. So, so um, Hitchcock, the guy that, that, the, that MoMA sends to, um, oh, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, this isn't Hitchcock. This is, this is Pevsner, the, the um, uh, historian of modern architecture, one of the, the big kind of figures of, of like what makes architecture modern. He writes this about Gaudi. Gaudi was not an architect in the sense of which the profession had established itself in the 19th century and was going to run in the 20th. He was not a professional man working in an office. He was essentially still the medieval craftsman whose final decision could only be taken as he watched over the execution of what he had perhaps sketched out on paper, but never made final. What he built was, quote, by the people for the people. And no doubt, quote, a joy for the maker, i.e. the actual Mason as well. So Mm. it's not only you in 2017 going there and doing it, but he understood the building and architecture and all of these kinds of this, as much as we intellectualize it or think of it really as just putting bricks on top of bricks, is a expression that involves a huge amount of other people and that it can incorporate all of those experiences. And I mean, that... To me, that's the kind of thing that that makes it really, really fascinating. We can argue whether whether Orwell had the perspective enough to recognize when, that Gothic isn't uh, applied style, but is a way of thinking, way of conceiving of how do I structure this? How do I make decisions about columns and, and all of this kind of stuff? It's a method more than it is like a, a bird that's flying by in the woods and you can point to it and say, oh, that's that. It's like... I that doesn't matter nearly as much as um, those first principles. I mean, it's enchanting to consider to what extent the experience for me in 2017 is a product finally of the same experience the Mason was having. You know, that sounds uh, sentimental, but when you put it that way and when you put it in the context of this more medieval approach – to building and the purposes of building and and um, there's you know it's it's funny because the word that comes to mind is organic and there's an organic quality to it aesthetically as well which is again to me anti-modern you know yeah. it would be the the like the organic phase of modernism insofar as it even had one comes long after high modernism and is in some ways a reaction against high modernism, right? And there's something, the fractal element that's organic, but also the methodology, the it's socially organic, the Gaudi praying in the morning with the Masons, which I, I, you know, hadn't heard before, John is an incredible uh, detail about it. You know, there's a there's a movement to canonize him. Actually, I have, I have a friend who has a Gaudi prayer card and prays to Gaudi to help him write better. Um, and um, <laughs> to tie this to Pashendi, right? I think one of the things that happened after Pashendi was 
I'll give you a different story. I, I had dinner with a congressman at this like event that I did. And he was a sort of uh, conservative congressman who was like, you know, back in my district, we're doing a memorial to the fallen from the global war on terror. And it's not going to be one of those weepy memorials, right? He seemed to be referring to the Vietnam Memorial, right? And he showed me an image of it. And it was like, he was very proud of, and it was like a Roman column, you know? And, and I was like, you oh, know, that's very nice. But in, 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 in my head, I was like, really? You know, like that's, what does, I don't know any, I don't hate Roman architecture or, or anything like that, but it just, it seems so, so unoriginal, boring and unexpressive and not commensurate with what, what he wanted to do. Right. And it felt like it was coming from a troubled reaction to modern memorial architecture rather than from any kind of genuine sort of vision and discovery. Right. And one of the things that's interesting after Pashendi is, you know, theologians are sort of feel like they're in this box. And one of the things that people start doing is they start going back before the modern period, before the, the scholastic period to the patristic accounts and, and sort of early church as a basis for theology, which allows them to move out into in stranger directions. Um, and then ultimately you have Vatican II and everything sort of opens up again. And, um, and that in, in, in a way, you know, that, you know, with John talking about sort of Gaudi going back not to the Gothic as a set of recognizable styles that we're going to imitate, but as a way of thinking and acting and responding to and working, right? Um, and integrating your sort of practice and thought um, as the thing that actually generates something that is truly epical and new. You know, in, um, in 1970, the, the American romantic poet James Russell Lowell wrote, this is no age to get cathedrals built. And uh, <laughs> I like that not that long after that, Gaudi starts working on on this cathedral, which is still ongoing. It's one of the most amazing things anybody's ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, here's to new and strange directions. John, thank you so much. Uh, this was a pleasure. Yeah, man, this is great. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. <laughs> And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs> <laughs>